0: And so we've been away from the abounding joy of New Testament hope. We're back into it now. Um, Part 13. I'll give you the title, and then it, it might tweak something in your memory, but I'll do a teeny bit of a review because we've been away from this for three weeks. The title this morning is How Faith and Sin. Faith, positive side, sin, the negative side. How faith and sin are each generated by where our hope is placed and there are tools that the enemy uses to destroy or misplace our hope. We looked at pride, that's the last one we looked at, and today I'm going to eventually start looking at anxiety. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We, I think we feel we know when that time is, but we're, we don't. At the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your, here it is, anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Here's a longer text, the same idea that I want to read on a few different slides. Matthew six twenty-five to 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be, here it is again, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And the answer to that for many people in this world is no. It's not for many people. Of course, that's not what Jesus is trying to say. Look at the birds of the air, 26. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that's the pagans. He doesn't just mean non-Jews, the, the pagans. They seek after all these things. That's the verb. This, this, is what they, this is what they do with their lives. That's what their lives are aimed at. It's, it's not the glory of God. Even if they say it is, this is really what consumes them. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drive, where you're going to invest, how you're going to retire. You you get the picture. This is what people live for. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow... Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And all God's people said, yeah, yeah. Let's pray. As we come back to a subject that we've left for a little while, I pray that you'll, you'll quicken our minds, help us to get the big picture again, to trace the flow of thought. Your word is so important. It requires our very best thinking. And it requires your Holy Spirit to come and enable our thinking. And give us taste buds for your kingdom. Instead of just what we will eat or drink or wear or drive or invest or buy. We, we all, we just feel... Given what life is like in the GTA, we just feel we need to pause and we need to ask your forgiveness. For all the times our lives, while appearing perfectly moral, but yet get distracted around the wrong priorities. Use this service, even as we read that little devotional. Use this service to stick eternity at the front of our heads and push everything else to the peripheral. We ask it in Jesus' name, and if you really mean that, say amen. For all of our talk about sin, it's amazing how rarely we study where it comes from. I mean, we know it comes from the fall, it comes from Satan, it comes from our rebellious nature. natures. We've got this, we have this general picture. It's bad, and it comes from those kinds of places. So we, we know generally the birthplace of our sinful attitudes and our sinful actions. But that's not what I mean. That's not the same as knowing how we encounter sin in our daily experience. And so we've been examining the relationship between sin and hope in this series. Specifically, as the title suggests, we've been studying the relationship between sinful actions and attitudes... And where we place our hope. How are those two related? We all long, I think, for two things. We don't long for 50 things. There's a lot of subcategories here. But the two things we long for, under which everything else fits, we long for satisfaction in life. And we long for security in life. And, and how we hope for these things how we hope for those two things is the birthplace of either increased sin or increased righteousness so important is this process that i want to take a quick tour backwards to to some of the ideas that we've been away from now for a few weeks but here's some of the principles that we've kind of nailed down so far in this series. This is a bit of a review, and, and I'll, I'll uh, take it out of the teaching time. Don't worry. The first principle that we looked at. People become ruled by sin when they believe the promise that sin offers. That was principle number one. Remember, no one sins out of duty. No one. Sin always offers either satisfaction or security. Temptation never comes empty-handed without some offering, some reward in some area of life. So, So people lust because they believe certain promises about boredom and the excitement of illicit sex. People covet because they believe the promise that material goods will satisfy the desires of the heart. People turn to bitterness and anger because they believe certain promises about how good it will feel to get even and achieve justice. They tell themselves their actions are maintaining justice and they become convinced that that's the only way they can settle the score and get satisfaction. Now, in each of those cases, God has a better way. In each of those cases, God has a better plan, a better hope for the desire that's burning in the heart. In fact, God promises greater rewards for those who will honor him than any sinful course of action could ever bring. But where you place your hope determines which way your heart's going to go here. So why do people sin if God's way is better? If God's promise is better? It's not complicated. Sin rules when I believe the promise of sin. Sin rules when my hope for either satisfaction or security becomes becomes fastened to a course of action other than the promise of God's word. That's where sin comes from. But believing the word of God, for a lot of us, has just become so vague that it's almost meaningless. Believing God's word doesn't mean believing that the Bible is the word of God. Believing God's word doesn't mean you believe in inspiration. Believing God's word doesn't even mean believing the Bible is true. Get this. Believing God's word, here's what it means. Believing God's word means hoping in what is. It promises rather than what sin promises. It's it's not just putting your brain there. It's putting your hope there. It's banking on it. That leads to the second point of this review. Here's the second thing we looked at. Hope is is faith looking into the future. Maybe you'll remember, maybe you won't, that I, I said that faith and hope are almost impossible to separate in the Scripture. You, you can't make them into two different things, though there are different names. I was looking at First Peter. I showed you this verse, in fact. 1 Peter 1, 21. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, that's speaking of Jesus, and gave him glory, look at this, so that your faith and hope are in are in God. So, so, why did God raise Jesus from the dead? Well, we know it has something to do with our sins being forgiven. Praise God. God raised up Christ from the grave, not just so that we might... Believe in him. Believe in the resurrection. Prove the empty tomb. That's not it. He raised him from the dead so that we would put our hope in him for our future. Faith and hope can't be split up. It's because there really aren't two things but one. Maybe this isn't a perfect description, but, but I think it's at least helpful. It's one thing Looking in two directions. So faith looks back at what God has accomplished in Christ on the cross for me. And hope looks forward into the future and banks on what God has said and done for my satisfaction, for my joy, for my security. So, so hope looks into the future and it says, God, I am looking at all the evidence of your love, all the evidence of your faithfulness in the past what you accomplished on the cross, all through the word of God and through your past faithfulness in my own life, especially when I look at your faithfulness in sending Jesus to die for me on the cross, and, and because of the evidence of your past faithfulness, because of the truth of your word, I have come to see the promise of satisfaction and security in sin to be a lie. That's the big shift that's come into my life. I have come to realize that the promises of joy, security, and satisfaction in the world are fool's gold. Most people don't see that. Because of what you've accomplished in cross, on the cross and because of my hope in you for future glory, I see all these other promises as deceptive, distracting, and empty. Until that has happened, whatever other, whatever I'm calling my experience, it's sub-Christian. It's sub-Christian. Until it reaches my hopes, my expectations for the future. Your loving kindness, we used to sing it, is better than life. Better. Better more satisfying than anything else I can find in this life. One more point of review. See, Because the devil knows that nothing is more vital to your holiness than your hope in God's promise, he attacks that hope more than he attacks anything else. That's what he's after. He is after what you hope in. Because that's how he controls your life. What you hope in sets the direction for everything else about you. And so, what Satan does, he comes and he wants to—he wants to say, "Don't, no, 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 over here. Look, this will work better. This will work better." He does it to marriages all the time. You, you can't be happy here. You got to get out. Probably God never meant you to be married to this person in the first place. That's just the enemy. I—I I got something. I got something that's going to make you happier. And if you listen, if that's where you put your hope, you're doomed. Absolutely doomed. There's thousands of little areas where this is the case. Because the devil knows that nothing is more vital to your holiness and your joy than your hope in God's promise, he attacks that hope more than anything else. Now we're coming to where I want to go today. Because this is the underlying thread... This is the underlying thread of all temptation. You you know how sin entered the world, right? Sin entered the world with that temptation. Satan comes to Eve and says, God, I I have something better for you. Did God really say that? Come on. This will work better. Don't, Don't place your hope in God. Just come over here. I'll show you something. Yes. Satan is clever. The Bible says that, but but he's not diverse. Satan is a one-trick pony. It is the same thing in a million different varieties. There is only one temptation on the planet. Don't put your hope in God. Come here, over here. I got something for you. Look at the world around you. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. This brings us right up to speed now. So we started to look in the last message at if he wants to take my hope from the promise of God for satisfaction and security and he wants to shift it to something else. How does he go about doing that? What are his tools for shifting our hope? The first one we looked at was pride. Pride. The one we're looking at today is anxiety. Okay, so we're all up to speed. Everybody okay? All right. Point point number one. Don't worry. Like pride, anxiety is such an effective ploy because while not a specific action, it's an attitude of heart that generates. It generates. An enormous variety of sinful deeds. That's what pride does. It's a root that sprouts all over the place in all sorts of sins. The same with anxiety. It's not anxiety by itself. It's what anxiety germinates in our lives. A variety of sinful deeds. So in other words, through anxiety, the devil can lead Christians into other sins that they would never dream of committing under normal circumstances. That's the important point. There's a reason that anxiety, like pride, it sort of spawns an enormous variety of sins. Anxiety spawns sins because anxiety shifts our hope. Anxiety, like pride, puts our eyes on something other than God for our satisfaction or our security. And false hopes, false hopes are the generator. That's the generator, the pickering power plant of all sin. That's where it comes from. You've turned your phones off, right, everybody? (laughs) It's not complicated. Anxiety about finances can lead to greed, hoarding, sometimes theft. Anxiety about success can make for... Irritability, sometimes even dishonesty. Anxiety about fulfillment can make one lustful, vain, short-sighted about the dangers and the risks. There's just no doubt about it. Eliminate anxiety and you destroy the root of all sorts of other sins from your heart as well. Point number two. Jesus always linked anxiety to our future hopes for satisfaction and security. Look at this in Matthew, chapter 6, verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Notice, notice the time words. They, they describe a life that, that lives today but isn't sure about tomorrow, okay? So the grass of the field is here today but not tomorrow. So what about us? What about our tomorrow? How will we secure our future? That, that's the issue of this verse. And, and, and the promise of the verse is, well, we can't secure our futures, only Father God can do that, and, and he has promised that he will. Will he not much more clothe you, future tense, O oh, you of little faith? Remember, the devil labors to destroy your ultimate satisfaction and security in God. He, he labors to remove God as the object of your hope. And one of his key tools is Anxiety. What are we going to do to protect our minds and hearts, to keep our hope? Point number three, remember it is spiritually unproductive to wallow in guilt about the anxiety you have. I mean, you've had someone do that. Oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm afraid, I'm worried. And someone comes and goes, hey, I got, don't worry. Does that help? Well, no. No. You heard about the guy, eh, that he was with a buddy and, and his, he was always so full of worry. And his buddy says, you know, I've noticed lately you've just been so much happier. Y- you seem more relaxed and at ease. And the guy said, well, I've, I've, it took me a while, but I finally found the secret. I I've hired someone to do all my worrying for me. I said, what do you mean you've hired someone? He says, that's true. I, I pay him $10,000 a week. He does all my worrying, all my anxiety, it's all on him. $10,000 a week, how are you going to pay him? That's his worry. <laughs> what, what are we going to do with anxiety? Love this verse because of the, it's a short text and it makes a very important distinction. And it's an easy verse to memorize. You can go home from church today saying, I know another verse. Psalm six three, When I am afraid and right away I'm thinking this psalmist is he's my kind of guy. When I am afraid I put my trust in you. So, so what I see right away is that this doesn't disqualify me for that. Fear does not disqualify you as being a person of faith and trust. That's because fear and anxiety aren't quite the same thing they're kind of close cousins anxiety is fear stretched out fear unleashed to prey on the future usually anxiety is is fear that's kind of gone malignant we all experience fear you can't live on earth without experiencing fear some fears are very helpful You keep your hand off the burner on the stove because you know it's going to hurt and you're afraid to do that. That's good. This text is relevant. The psalmist doesn't say, I have never experienced fear. He, He does. He will. And you will. I think the trick is to deal with fear before it comes to the point of shifting our hope. Because... It's at that point, the shifting of our hope, that fear morphs into an anxiety that gives birth to a host of other sins. Anxiety leads to self-reliance, which leads to independence from God and the hopeful promise of his word. And remember, the goal of the devil is always the same. Only one goal. His goal is to morph fear into Anxiety that loosens my trust in God as the source of my satisfaction and security. With that in mind, I think you can see the significance of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, 25 and then 27 to 28. Matthew 6, 25 and then 27 to 28. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 27. Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Notice the way Jesus asks with apparent surprise. 28, why are you so anxious about these things? That's what he says. Why? Why indeed? I mean, that's the right question. Where does that anxiety come from? Even when the sources of our anxiety are things we can do absolutely nothing about, like adding an hour to the length of our appointed days on earth, 27. What you eat, drink, Where? The comfort of your physical body. Satan wants all of your attention pasted to those things. And that's because he knows we can't secure our own lives around these things on our terms and hope in God at the same time. That's what he knows. And if we don't hope in God for our satisfaction and our security, we are destined to be forever slaves of the sin of anxiety. The perfect tool, the perfect storm for dislodging God-centered hope. Last point, number four. Ironically, anxiety can't be remedied by greater success or more wealth. There's a different approach. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. So there's one and there's two. It's one of the great tragedies of the church that these two verses are so frequently quoted but almost never quoted together and, and the apostle Peter he he strains language to show there's only one remedy for anxiety and it's not one we the, the remedy I would expect is someone to come and say don't worry so much but notice where Peter goes the issue here is anxiety so so what are we to do about it and, and he goes to he goes to humility it's a bit of a surprise. He strains language to show anxiety can only be remedied properly by humility. In other words, the, the energy of anxiety that causes us to work harder for our own satisfaction and our own security. It, it, it's a subtle form of pride. I'm going to do this. I'm not hoping in God. I don't think he's doing a very good job. I made less money this year than last year. God's not doing a good job. I'm going to take care of this. Peter says the reason we have a problem with anxiety is we have a problem with humility. This isn't obvious at first. He he doesn't mean we run around bragging our heads off, oh, look at me, I'm great, I'm great. He doesn't mean we think we're better looking or stronger. Most of us, I hope, have passed that. I'm talking about something more subtle, something that is rampant in the body of Christ. I'm talking about the cherished notion in my heart, never said out loud, that my life, this, this is... In this room right now, this is widely held, this belief. And it's a problem. My life is the sum total of what my work, my power, and my ingenuity make it. That is a damning attitude. It will keep you out of the kingdom of God. And then we marshal verses. We know the verses. A person doesn't work, you shouldn't eat. One who doesn't provide for his own family is worse than an infidel. I'm not arguing. They're true enough. But then a line gets crossed. And something fairly good becomes something positively wicked. And, and the crossing of the line has a lot to do with anxiety and a loss of humility. Let me just be real practical here. That line gets crossed by the business person who can't tear himself away from the home office on Sunday night. Not because of what he does believe about work, but because of what he doesn't believe about God. He believes in his work ethic, all right. But it's a belief that's out of balance. The fact is, he doesn't have the humble trust, the hope in God... To believe that God can look after his business to whatever level of success God deems necessary as he honors the first commitment to the Lord's day. But he's too proud to believe that. He wouldn't call himself proud. Peter says, you need to humble yourself. Take another example. Picture the man who's been wronged by a close brother. How easy it is to feel that this injustice has to be righted. Especially if he's been genuinely wronged. How easy it is to put himself at the center of the universe and feel that he must take the initiative to make things right. But it's not my job to do that. I need to humble myself. And to the business person alone polishing his gold in his office and the distracted brother trying to balance the scales of justice and that person who wants to walk away from a marriage because it's boring and they annoy each other and God's got something maybe down the road that's going to be way more exciting. God comes along and says, you need need to humble yourself under my mighty hand so that you can cast all those cares on me, and I will care for you. But you have to do it. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, because that's what opens the door for me to say, his way is better, I might not see it right now. I trust in it, I hope in it. And that's what I'm going to do. You have no idea, friend. You have no idea. No idea what sins you will commit in the next few weeks. Once your hope for satisfaction and security becomes detached from God's promise. You have no idea the blunders you're going to make in the next ten days. But let's do it differently. Let's close putting it in the positive form. In a way that has a lot more poetic beauty. Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's hoping in him. Delight yourself in the Lord. <clears throat> what, what temptation is coming at you right now? And you're just at the point where, you know what? I think, I think Satan says, come here. I got an idea. I got an idea. And if you can just say, you know what? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you will never make a big spiritual mistake there. And everyone said, let's pray.